This is Most Innovative Companies from Fast Company, where we speak to visionary founders to understand how they think, how they innovate, and what lessons they may have for you and the businesses that you run in every shape and size. I'm James Vincent, a founding partner at Founder. Welcome to the series highlights of the Most Innovative Companies podcast. We've actually recorded and released 12 episodes now with founders and innovators of all shapes and sizes, and we're only just getting started. We've tried in this episode to nail five big learnings that we've taken from these 12 pretty exceptional individuals. What have they learned? How can we pass it on? If there's one podcast you listen to, this might be it. So times are tough right now and headwinds are strong. The economic climate has shifted even as we've recorded this podcast three to four months ago, looks different even to now. We're really trying to share lessons that are timeless. And specifically, we're going to start with ones that might help you through this moment, actually see the opportunity in the moment from people that have been through this before. How do you innovate in crisis? Warren Buffett has that famous quote, when everyone's scared, get greedy. When everyone's greedy, get scared. And my suggestion at this moment is is not really to get greedy, but to avoid getting too scared. Innovation is not a luxury you do just in good times. It's a necessity. Creativity is a necessity. And I thought Brian Chesky really captured that so wonderfully in this notion that creativity gives you a third option. You know that moment where you have two bad options and you really don't like either? Well, guess what? If you bring creativity to it, maybe, just maybe, you have a third option. How many Fortune 500 companies are run by a truly creative person? Not many, and maybe that's understandable. Now take the Fortune 500 and ask, the average Fortune 500 company probably has 12 people on the board, 6,000 board members. How many of those are creative people? Not many. How many creative people on the executive team? Not many. Somebody once said, number is the language of business. I said, no, it's not. Language is the language of business. You just think it's numbers. And... I think that the key is that it's not about creativity to drive everything. It's that it should be in the room. It should be in the conversation. And you ever have those bad trade-offs where there's no good solution? That's when creativity is really helpful. Because when you have two bad options, creativity sometimes allows you to design a win-win, a third path. And I think that there's a creative renaissance that could happen. Because when you look at the next generation, they are really different. They have this creative spirit. And I think creativity is very correlated with humanistic. And I think that people want to buy things from companies or work for companies that are deeply humanistic. And I think if a human being in a relationship acted like a corporation, you'd call that person a sociopath. You'd say you are sociopathic. At the end of the day, we got to remember, people are human. Another key lesson comes from a founder in fintech right now, not the easiest place to be. Joe at Titan sees opportunity in this disorientating moment that we're in to build something transcendental, that actually, if you're smart and keenly aware of what consumers and customers want, perhaps it's a real moment for building a culture of innovation. It's totally wise to ensure, you know, your ship is sturdy, it can last through the storm. But if you abandon your customers, abandon innovating, abandon thinking about what do they need right in this moment, you're really abdicating not only 
from a mission standpoint, but also a business standpoint, a really amazing opportunity to grow. The thing that folks are wrestling with is you've been getting a lot of mixed messages the last few years. It's a bull market. Um, what should you keep doing? What should you not keep doing? Right now, it's the thing everybody's been preparing for, which are when tides get a little more choppy, you really find out, like, do you have a sturdy boat? And are you good at navigating those shifting tides? So I believe that if you're going to do something great and societal, you actually need counterintuitively a disorienting event to build something transcendental. Another conversation around and the ability to see opportunity, even when times are tough, came from my interview with Danny Reimer, partner at Index Ventures. He's actually in the room with all these founders and funding them at an early stage. And he sees that this is the moment when we'll see the best founders emerge. And I think he has some historical context to share with us as to why that might indeed be true. The best companies and the best entrepreneurs are going to be backed at this time. Because if you are starting a company right now, you mean it. So we're going to love that. You're not going to start a new company today in this climate without really wanting to do it. So you already get that check. The second point is you're ready for a very difficult environment. You're ready for the fact that you're not going to raise as much as you would. And I can't prove this, but I think that companies are inversely proportional. Their success is inversely proportional to how much they raise in the earliest rounds. So the fact that you don't have that much money on your balance sheet is actually going to make you a much more creative, much more resourceful company. And then the third part is if you are starting a company and it is going to work in this time, then it's probably an amazing business. So if we look at our own portfolio, Skype was one of our first fantastic opportunities or and it got started in 2002. It was a terrible time. Adyen got started in 2008. Uber was started then. Salesforce got through 2001, 2002. So the resilience and the resourcefulness of the entrepreneurs who kick off businesses now implies that they're probably going to create much better businesses than the last crop of companies. The second big theme that's come up in the last 12 episodes is about creating an innovation culture, a resilient innovation culture that can, carries on through thick and thin. My co-founder and partner, Becca Jeffries, uh, founder, really put this well in terms of the various shapes and sizes that innovation comes in so that you can figure out how to introduce innovation culture into your company. To debunk the idea that innovation might be one size fits all, it's not one size fits all. And a lot of people think that really this is the domain of a creative or an inventor only, but we've seen so many different kinds. I think there's obviously the ones everyone expects, product innovation or entire new categories. And we have plenty of founders that are in that space. Meaty was growing meat from mycelium and creating a whole new category of highly nutritious and low impact food for the planet. Then you've got operating systems innovation, where like the Bowery operating system with Irving that never stands still and it builds off constant iteration to make scaling vertical farming a reality. You have examples of innovation through internal structures and ways of working. And we're really seeing that with one of our founders, Jeremy, over at Zag Studios. He's scaling a singular, very unique, very passion-led personality and 
all of his instincts into a really huge company that's bringing amazing content to the forefront in culture. And he's doing that through beliefs and behaviors and values that he is clearly infusing into the way the company works, not like your typical studio. And then there's times where the business model itself is the innovation. And you start at the beginning with a company like Pangaea as an example. It's built as a collective dedicating to bringing niche material innovations to market, but at scale and speed. And that in itself is innovation at the core and is constantly how they operate. Since Becca mentioned Bowery, the founder and CEO Irving Fain did a great podcast with us in terms of innovation beyond the innovator, creating an operating system that shows innovation thrives from within. Let's listen to Irving. The bigger an organization becomes, like, there's, there's at some point this implicit resistance to change. People like consistency and they, they like routine, they like habituation. It's really critical to ensure that there's constant change occurring within an organization. And change can occur on a product level. Change can occur on a process level. It can work in all different ways. And so we've recently made a number of changes internally to, to how we're working and the way we're organizing around different bodies of work. And so that will ultimately pull through, I hope, to innovation in the work itself. But it started with the process and the way the work is happening. And so I think innovation can fly at a number of different levels, but it requires intention the bigger an organization goes. And so, you know, it's been interesting for me because, as I said, it was endemic to who we were for a long time. And it still is such a core attribute of who we are at Bowery is, is reinventing and reimagining consistently. And we talk as a team about not getting tied to anything that we do today necessarily as a sacred cow and being willing to re-examine everything we're doing and the why around it. And just because it made a lot of sense three years ago or five years ago, we know a lot more today than we did three years or five years ago. And so maybe what we thought made a lot of sense or what did make a lot of sense doesn't today. And the willingness to tear it down and rebuild it again, that is a critical component to an enduring company. Another great example was Alex Wang from Scale AI, who's built one of the most successful startups of the last decade. And he had two very blunt pieces of advice about cultivating the right innovation culture that apply both to a startup and to a, a team within a company of any size. The number one thing is to hire people who give a shit. It's a simple thing, but I think that an unfortunate fact about most big companies or mildly big companies is that you look around and people don't even seem to care about what the company's doing anymore. It's not even clear if they ever cared about the work that they did. And this isn't a judgmental claim, but I think it's impossible to build something to make magic if nobody around you cares about what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that the, this problem arises because there's a subtle change that happens at a lot of companies, which is when you're small, the only people you'd be able to get your company are people who give a shit. Because frankly, you're this small little company. Nobody's going to care about you unless they like happen to really, really care. And maybe they're slightly crazy in the process, but you know they really, really care. And that's the only way you attract people. It works up until a certain size. Then you get to be bigger, successful, more notable company. And a lot of people want to work at the company. And then I think what ends up happening is the recruiting team turns into a college admissions office. You know, we have all these applicants coming in. Let's select the most impressive, diverse, and interesting group of people coming in rather than who lives and dies for the mission and who really, really cares. And this small difference of how do you bring on missionaries versus mercenaries is a really, really 
important thing for, for companies to get right. Ultimately, the company is made up of the people that uh, you bring into your company. Your, your foundations are your people. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that you get that right. And you have to hire people who just are fervent. A, they're just the kind of people who just care so much about what they do and care so much about their work and care so much about having a dent on the universe. And you get people who are so passionate about what your company's doing that it naturally becomes the sort of inspiring thing that drives their life. We have this belief, optimism shapes reality. We also call it ambition shapes reality. So one example, this funny phenomenon where people end up more or less accomplishing the magnitude of their optimism or their ambition. It's a really funny phenomenon. It was hypothesis for a long time. There, nobody could ever break the four minute mile and, and everybody struggled with it. And then as soon as somebody broke it, a lot of people ended up breaking the four minute mile. And it's just one of these things. Humans are incredible at accomplishing the sort of scale of their ambition. And when you think about that in an organization, it's so important that you create a culture where people dream really big, where people have incredible optimism for what you're going to accomplish. Because if they're not thinking big, then you sort of have no hope. Another way to put it is that thinking small is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The third bucket around innovation is recognizing what humans need in this moment and going to help solve it. My partner, Nick Barham, said it best during our partner episode where he said there's a, a new wave of companies responding to 21st century demands. Perhaps the best example of that is Brian Chesky, who really understood that the pandemic had created a loneliness epidemic and that the role of Airbnb was to provide some solace and understand its role in culture at this particular moment. We hired the now current Surgeon General of the United States when he wasn't Surgeon General. We hired him because of COVID and we wanted to keep the homes clean. As Surgeon General, he picked a signature issue. He said, I want to tackle the number one killer in America. Well, what's the number one killer in America? Well, according to him, the number one killer in America was loneliness. Because loneliness is this dark thread that runs through, it's not the 100% cause, but it runs through addiction and suicide and depression and anxiety and a lot of mental health disorders. And there were studies that showed that being lonely is equivalent to smoking a pack and a half of cigarettes a day. Well, it turns out the majority of Americans today feel sometimes are always lonely. The loneliest people in America are young people, Gen Z, are younger than baby boomers. In fact, kids in high school are typically lonelier than people in nursing homes. There is a loneliness epidemic. And the more time that we spend on screens, it seems the more lonely people actually become, even though those screens made a promise of human connection. And so what's happened now? Our offices are digitized. So the office is now Zoom, not physical connection. The mall is now Amazon. The theater is now streaming from your couch. The grocery store is now Instacart delivering. And every one of these things feels like a step forward humanity. But the aggregate impact is that suddenly you have a generation isolated, lonely, alone, on edge, staring at endless screens. And I'm not saying that we're here to solve that problem, but what I am saying is that a lot of companies and a lot of people have to come together to think about how are we gonna build community for the next generation? Because it is not natural for people to only live their lives on digital screens. You see the consequences. And long after this pandemic is over, an epidemic of loneliness, desperation, isolation, and division, and hate, and all these things that happen, they come from a lack of human interaction. And the best way I found to change someone else's mind 
is to make them walk in someone else's shoes. No one changed anyone else's mind in the YouTube comment section. Your Instagram followers will not be at your funeral, and if they were, they wouldn't say anything other than, well, they had a nice body. <laughs> it's hard to not change someone's mind up close when you walk in their shoes, you live their life, and you realize the other is not so other, and we're very similar. That's what drives me, and designing how people connect together is what we're trying to do at the most fundamental level. This trend we've seen of founders utilizing technology to better the human condition is also the case in lots of other categories. I'm going to go back to Alex at Scale AI because I think there's a very negative narrative around AI. But it turns out, of course, that machines can liberate human creativity if we think about them the right way. In the Industrial Revolution, we didn't build general purpose machines. We built very specific machines. It's true, a machine that assembles a car is a lot faster and better at assembling that car than any person is. But as a person, you can do other things that that machine is never gonna be able to do. The same is true with the artificial intelligence systems of today. They're gonna to get to a point where they can do very interesting and incredible things, but they're not gonna be able to do all the things that humans can do. And so how do we harness that ability and how do we harness these intelligence machines to then enable us to get to the next level of creativity and the next level of enabling humanity to accomplish more. One great example of this in the near future, content production and making a movie. Right now, if you look at the AI technologies that are being made today, we're gonna to be able to make movies that are just as visually compelling as the movies of today for a small fraction of the cost because we're gonna have good AI that can automate visual effects, that can automate a lot of the editing, automate a lot of the special effects and really enable people to be far more creative in the process of, of making these movies. And that's gonna be this huge enabler for unleashing the creativity of a very small percentage of people in the world have any access to, or have any hand to play in the process of making a movie. But what if it could be the case that almost anyone in the world could, with the help of AI, make movies? On a very practical front, I thought the podcast with Joanna Coles really got into how to connect with culture. Here's a journalist, board member of Snap and Sonos and, and other great companies. Joanna just has that incredibly curious mind and she observes people, pays attention to them. There's a great lesson there for pretty much everybody to go ahead and do that too. It's always worth talking to people. I think the question is, what are you asking them? What are you listening for? And what are you not hearing when they tell you things? So it's really about paying attention. And often people say the opposite of what they mean. And often people do the opposite of what they tell you that they do. And that's where the training as a journalist is quite useful, because you're paying attention to everything. One of the things I always find interesting is what are the photos that people are displaying of themselves? Because there are always going to be photos that display what they want you to think their life is, which is probably not what their life is. There are just clues everywhere. People come forth with clues. And so you're trying to be a detective to figure it out. And I wouldn't ever say that you don't want data. Data is incredibly useful as long as it's good. But don't ignore the human. The fourth area throughout the 12 podcasts that came up was the role of leadership and their job in creating the conditions for innovation. Back to Irving Fain at Bowery, as an outsider in the farming industry, 
his ability to revolutionize it through technology and providing the conditions within his company to think about innovation every single day. It's interesting to see and just reflect on my own leadership style because it's evolved over the course of Bowery as it needs to. As an organization grows and changes and evolves itself, so must the leader. Because same as I said before, the solution for one of our problems five years ago may no longer be the solution today because we're different. The leadership style that worked five years ago, in fact, almost certainly doesn't work today. And so your job as a leader, first and foremost, is to be evolutionary. And so that's something that I constantly focus on and, and where and how can I be different and more effective and better for the moment in time we're in now and what's ahead. The bigger you are and the more mature the business is and the more mature and strong and substantial of a team you have under you, the easier it is to be disconnected from the day-to-day -day reality of the business. And having comfort with some level of disconnection is actually sometimes a challenge as a founder because it started with you. And it's very strange to sort of hand off your vision and your ideas and the incredibly important components of what you're building into someone else's hand. And that's absolute necessity. But at the same time, maintaining a connection to some of the pieces that really matter is also really important. And especially in a business like ours, I hold a lot of import in understanding what's happening in the day-to-day right. -to, -day to a certain extent. Because it's important for me to be able to explain to somebody where we are, why we are where we are, and where we're going. But the bigger an organization gets, the more you have to be willing to be a little bit further away. And you have to be smarter and more thoughtful about when you dive in. Because if you dive in too frequently, you also lose the broader vantage point. Another great example of innovation and leadership is Patrick Spence, CEO of Sonos, who experienced working at BlackBerry at exactly the moment the iPhone was introduced. And that led him really to apply his unique approach to innovation. He divides the company between explorers and builders, and he never stops innovating, even when you don't need to. I have the experience of having lived through and put my blood, sweat, and tears into 14 years of building a company and seeing what happens when you're not continuing to push yourself outside your comfort zone. That goes for us as individuals and as a company. One of the hardest things for a lot of the people that are probably listening or watching is that you need to focus to get your company to a certain point. You're testing product market fit. You're getting to a point where this works and you have lightning in a bottle. And then what happens is if you're not careful, you can get complacent with that and think, okay, we've got the thing, we've got it continuing to go, we're going to be fine. And we've seen this with some companies coming out of the pandemic where they thought they had everything said and they thought they were going to be fine. And now they've realized, oh no, we didn't because they didn't use the pandemic as a way to push even harder and push even further right into their organization. Finally, around innovation and leadership is this notion of having an independent voice on your board, in an advisory capacity. Joanna Coles talks about the value of independent voices, asking questions, and not allowing you to get stuck in your own yes bubble. Often companies are started with people who aren't necessarily yes people, but are friends from the beginning. Companies are often created from scratch by young people, often young men who've never worked anywhere else. So they create it to follow their own strengths, but obviously increasingly their own weaknesses become apparent. They often don't realize they should hire to their weakness, which is an incredibly important thing to do. So you're balancing out things. 
And they often don't realize that you don't have to recreate the wheel every single time. There are often either people out there that can do that for you or there are organizational tools you can employ to help the company. What's valuable about having an independent outside voice is they can just ask questions. And sometimes in the nature of the questions, you find an answer or you try and shine a light on something that you think might need some more oblique angles. Our fifth lesson around innovating for the future perhaps the most important one, trying to understand the various significant disruptions that are going on in the digital and the physical world around us. And how do we go about tackling that? Stephen Butler, my co-founder and partner at Founder, had a wonderful way of talking about what the world looks like today when he describes it as an interaction with a new world. It's not just enough to have innovation, it's how you frame your innovation. How do you present that? And I think one, a lot of the conversations we will have every day with our founders is you don't want to create a great innovation and then position it as a solution to an old world problem. You need to project and look at what is this interaction with a new way that people want to live and the world is looking at today. Because we know that a problem solution model is, is actually a, a limited business model. Whereas when you're looking at an interactive model of how is my product, how is my technology going to interact with culture, you're looking at an infinite model. So if this new world is so radically different and we need to be not a reaction to the old world, but an interaction with the new. Let's jump into a few different categories to see how they're responding to the challenge of that. The first of which is fashion. We had a wonderful conversation with Jose Nevis, the founder and chairman, CEO of the global luxury platform Farfetch. He's building fashion in Web3. It's a complex trend, which he explains so unbelievably simply. Let me start by saying that for me, fashion is about the human side of things and it is a deeply human endeavor and it's your second persona that is with you every single day. And and therefore, technology should be at the service of that, not replacing that. So we always think of technology as enhancing the human interaction between curators, creators and, and lovers of fashion as opposed to replacing that human connection. In terms of Web3, what does that mean for this industry? The best definition I read was Web1 was about read, Web2 was about read-write, and Web3 was about read-write-own. When you take that to fashion, then the use cases are endless. And that's why we have Dream Assembly, right? We want to bring more and more and more use cases. Let's jump to another thing that people are most passionate about in their life, sports. In the podcast I did with Nicola at So Rare, he was able to describe examples of how digital experiences unlock physical ones and physical ones unlock digital ones. I think part of the vision that we have is really to connect the physical and the digital world. As you said, collecting is something that is really physical. And this is something that we do as human beings to express who we are and uh, to connect with other people. And obviously, as our lives are becoming digital, I thought that there's going to be an interest to do that on the web as well. The other thing, obviously, is uh, the games are happening in the physical world and we are bridged to better connect with these games. So that's from the physical 
to the digital, but you can also have an impact over the real world because when you own this NFT cons, it unlocks things in the physical world. You can attend the game, you can meet a player, you can access training grounds. So we are starting to develop all those possibilities that are unlocked by owning the con, and that's very exciting. So yes, uh, that's definitely part of our vision. Oftentimes I get asked, what do you think about the metaverse? First, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to define it. But what's for sure is that I don't want a world where like, we are spending even more time connected. And I think one of the beauty of the product that we are developing is the gameplay itself. You don't need to stay in front of the screen. You collect your cards, you compose your team, and then you can go outside, have fun with your friends or do sports, whatever. But you don't need to play in front of the screen. And that's something that's very important to me. I really don't want to contribute to this hyper connection to our living. I want to help at least stabilize, if not decrease it. So now let's jump to perhaps the thing that you love doing the most, which is shopping. Albert Sanger is the founder and CEO of Nay, which was designed for a new generation and the way that they want to shop. He was trying to avoid what he described as shopping traps and create a place where you can shop without being tracked, not risking your privacy. There's no zero-sum game involved. And that Nate might be something in this single storytelling universe that you might literally carry with you from one place to another without jeopardizing your privacy, without being followed. Most people think that there is this inherent conflict between wanting to protect your identity and wanting to share who you are with your friends. It is okay to want both. And if the company tells you, oh, you cannot have both, walk out as soon as possible. <laughs> if you hear that, like, seriously, like, So it's run, not a zero-sum game. It is not. Right. It is not. You've made to believe that it is, but that's just business model design. Right. And so I want to make sure that you can have both. Right. Machines are there supporting you to make sure that you can be as human as possible. And you are intentionally controlling all the data points that you are leaving behind. And now let's jump to a meta trend, which is the creator economy. Jack Conte at Patreon had a prediction about the future where creative people and creators do indeed own what they create. There's a whole new world where the aggregators aren't the ones being paid, but the people creating it are the ones being paid. A huge opportunity for a whole new generation of people to operate and innovate in their own manner. What has become clear to me over the last five years is the change between when we started and where the world is now. Because now the world has woken up to how dumb this first model of paying artists was over the first 20 years of the internet and how it must be fixed. And now everybody's got this term that they're throwing out called the crater economy, which always makes me laugh a little bit because as if this is the first crater economy, there've been many crater economies for thousands of years, different business models and ways that creators have made money. It's just that the last 20 years of it really sucked for artists. And now it's finally getting back to a more full fleshed out economy where artists can make money again. But I feel like that new trend of power shifting away from institutions and back toward individuals and in particular toward creators and creators getting autonomy and control and leverage of their businesses, of their media, of their ownership, of their payments methods, of everything. That trend is now coming at the world a thousand miles an hour and nothing can change it. And granted, I'm an eternal optimist here, but what is happening right now is a sea change in favor of creative people. So when you pull all the threads together, 
of all of these different conversations, I think one of the things that's most clear is we find a bunch of founders and innovators who are working to design companies intentionally, utilizing the power of storytelling to unify their efforts, creating stories that are timeless and building companies that are resilient because they utilize the power of narrative. I don't think anyone's going to argue that we're at this incredible inflection moment. And the reality is that if we are going to change our world, in many ways, we need to change the narrative. And I think it's important to recognize that brands and businesses can be one of our most effective vehicles for narrative change. And if we can raise the bar at that level, there's no limit to what we can achieve. The reality is, though, is the route to that profound change through positive innovation lies in this idea that business can be part of our human future. Uh, it doesn't need to be its own story. And narrative is this way of reconciling and realigning businesses, ethics, and humanity. An intentional narrative is that at its core. That's what it does. It's this new understanding of the cause and effect of each and every business. And we talk a lot with our founders about this. In many ways, it's how we choose who we like to work with. And also, it's this idea that it's about capitalism, not just viewed as a sum total in of itself, but rather as a form of collective accountability and, and responsibility. Importantly, seeing intentional narrative as a founder is really thinking of it as a source for and a product of innovation. It's hmm. both these things. It's not just something you wrap around your innovation, but it can also become this powerful driver of innovation. It tends to drive your recruitment and your retention, uh, not just in terms of your customers, uh, but also internally with your employees. What's been so wonderful about talking with these founders and innovators is that they're all so clear about the impact they want to have that they can tell their story and setting a course that might need to tack one way and another way, but their intentions are clear. And the strength of their companies is going to be more resilient as a result. I can't wait to see how their stories play out. So we hope you've enjoyed the first 12 episodes of Most Innovative Companies. We're going to be doing more, so don't worry. If you're intrigued by any individual one of them, you'll find an entire podcast where you can go click and listen to everything they said. We tried to just grab the key salient points from them, but there's plenty more in there. Hopefully you'll find that nourishing and a useful tool for you to figure out as you amass all of the lessons together. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Stephen Butler, Rebecca Jeffries, and Nick Barham, my partners at Founder. And there was a huge team involved at Founder, and I want to just make sure that they all get some credit here for the great work they did. And as follows, Naomi Bartle, Camila Di Galoma, Rehan Baal, Celine Naki, Amanda Goli, Arde Meluish, Malik Drowy, and Mine Kakmak. All right, that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to Most Innovative Companies wherever you listen. And if you like this episode, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And we also want to hear from you. So let us know what you'd like to hear more of. Send us an email at podcasts at fastcompany.com or tweet us at hashtag most innovative companies. You can also follow me on Twitter at FNDR underscore James. Most Innovative Companies is a production of Fast Company in partnership with founder FNDR. We couldn't afford the vowels. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. 
Our sound design is Nicholas Torres. Writing is Matias Sanchez. Alex Webster and Nikki Checkley helped with the production. This podcast was done in collaboration with my wonderful partners at Founder, Stephen Butler, Becca Jeffries, and Nick Barham. <laughs>